0: The whole New Testament maintains a distinction between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is called the Son all throughout the New Testament. He's never called Father. Why does this matter? What's the big deal, right? I mean, this is just a very detailed little thing, right? It's just a change of a word, manifestation, persons. Well, it matters, obviously, because we want to have a proper view of God and be able to discern false teaching. This is very tricky. Because you can go to a church, you perhaps been to a church, you perhaps grew up in a church that taught this and you probably never knew about it because you never heard it. You can read through a statement of faith, like the one in the potter's house, and go right through it and keep on going, and you wouldn't know any different. It matters because, number one, this is a heretical view of God. This throws you off the Christian faith. Number two,
1: it affects the gospel. It's very important. It affects the gospel. Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for May 25th, 2018 today brother omar brings us part eight of his message called statement of faith doctrine of god brother omar teaches us how dangerous the oneness pentecostal doctrine is and why it doesn't line up with who the bible says god is brother omar reminds us about the importance of having the correct view of god and his word so that we can spot false doctrine before it enters our belief system So grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's Word here on Followers of the Way.
0: We're talking about the Doctrine of God. This is the eighth sermon on the Doctrine of God. And we have been dealing with certain uh, different heresies that came up during the early church period and then they reappeared in the last hundred years or so. So last, last time I was preaching, we spoke on Arianism and the modern narration of that would be the Jehovah's Witnesses and what they believe concerning who God is, who Jesus is, etc. cetera. And uh, we talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that were happening during the time that the Jehovah's Witnesses emerged. And we zeroed in on their doctrine of God and how they differ from what we understand to be the historic understanding in the Christian faith. Now, today... We're gonna talk about another heresy. This is probably gonna be the last heresy we're gonna deal with, there's a lot more. This stuff can go on for several months. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna focus on the one that affect us probably the most, which is the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're still around, we interact with them. If you've ever been outside of your house, you've interacted with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now today, we're gonna talk about one that is a little bit trickier because this one can very easily make its way into Christianity. In fact, it has. And we're talking about something called modalism. Modalism. Now, the first question is, what is modalism? Now, modalism is the teaching that there is one God. Now, if you remember last time, we talked about there's really two, if you believe there's only one God, you're gonna be one or two different perspectives. One is Unitarian, which is God is, One God, one person. The other one is Trinitarian, which God is one and three persons. So, modalism is the teaching that there is one God who is one person that manifests himself in three different modes. So, think of it as roles or masks, right? I'm a father, I'm also a husband, I'm also a laundry. Service technician, sometimes I pose as a preacher. Um, <laughs> but I have these different roles, but I'm still one person. I play these different roles in my life. I, you know, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I, 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 I'm a technician in my job, but I'm the same person. So that's more or less what they teach. They teach there's only one God who is one person, but that one person is the father but sometimes he is the son and sometimes he is the Holy Spirit he has three different roles that he plays primarily so God is one person so they're Unitarians who manifest himself in three different ways now the history of this teaching this was first taught or made popular in the third century by a man named Sibelius now we don't know much about him his writings were burned etc Uh, Back in those days, freedom of religion was something that people didn't understand. So his writings, after he was declared a heretic, were burned and so forth. So we don't know much about him. Um, He might have been North African. Lots of North Africans writing theology in those days, it seems. But more, more or less, what we understand is that Sibelius wanted to explain the doctrine of God in ways that could be easily understood. And to counter the accusation of the pagans. If you remember, the pagans were accusing the Christians of believing in three different gods, which we don't. We believe in only one God. So Sibelius, in wanting to explain that away, came, you know, more or less came up with this teaching. Now, there's a pretty good chance, we don't know for sure, that he might have been well-intentioned. In other words, he wanted to explain the doctrine of God to people. Nevertheless, Good intentions are not necessarily truth. And what is it they say? The the road to hell is paved by good intentions? In this case, that's literally true. So the teaching or the idea is simply that, that there's only one God who is one person, and he just manifests himself in three different ways. So what is the modern iteration of this teaching? It's found in a group called the Oneness Pentecostals or Apostolic Pentecostals. Now, I have to give you a brief overview of the history of Pentecostalism. And to do that, we have to go all the way back to the ancient times of 1906. Now, in 1906, we have the Pentecostal revival, okay, which happened in Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California. So, here's what happened. The Pentecostal movement came about in 1906. There was a man by the name of William Seymour. If you ever doubted that God does not have a sense of humor, William Seymour was blind out of one eye. So, despite him being called William Seymour, that was a joke. Supposed to laugh, nobody's laughing. All right. See, sometimes I pretend to be a funny man. So, William Seymour, basically the story is he was African American in a time where perhaps if you had a choice, that's not the best thing that you could have been because of segregation, Jim Crow laws, etc. He was saved under the different revivals that were happening in the United States around that time. And um, he began to want to study the Word of God, but he couldn't attend seminary because he was a black man. So he convinced a man by the name of Charles Parham to allow him to sit outside by the window while he was teaching so he could learn the doctrine of God, which is awful that a a seminary would do that to a human being. But that's what was going on in those days. So anyways, long story short, he makes his way over to Los Angeles where he starts a a revival mission. And a revival breaks out. And the whole Pentecostal movement came about from there. Okay, and there's a long story I don't want to get into, but that's basically what happened. Now, in 1913, you have all these different revivals, Pentecostal things that are happening. In 1913, there was a campground meeting or a camp meeting. I don't know if you guys remember those back in the days. And there was about a thousand or so Pentecostal leaders who attended and they were preaching in different places or whatever in this big huge campground in California. And a man by the name of R.E. McAllister began teaching that in the book of Acts, The apostles baptized in the name of Jesus. So he was asked to preach, right, about baptism during a a water baptismal. So he preached, and he said, he points out that in the book of Acts, the apostles baptized in the name of Jesus, and therefore that the proper baptismal formula is in the name of Jesus only. See, we, Orthodox, historic Christians, Baptized in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit He said no if you look at the book of Acts they all baptize in the name of Jesus. That is the only real baptism so During this time There was a man there by the name of John shapey or shape or however you pronounce that and he Thought what does that mean that we're supposed to baptize in the name of Jesus only? so he spent all night that day when he heard this, praying and reading his scriptures all night. And he realized that in the Bible, the Great Commission tells us that we are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So he realized or was revealed unto him, however you want to call it, that the name that we're supposed to be baptized is the name of Jesus. And then the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the different roles and titles of God, but God's name is Jesus. So the name of God is Jesus, who sometimes is the Father, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. So, he runs around yelling and screaming this whole campground okay speaking his new revelation that he has received his new doctrine to baptize in the name of jesus several people long story short several people got together and began to preach this develop it and so forth so they started re-baptizing people who were already baptized in the proper way which is in the name of jesus a new doctrine that they just discovered okay so the pentecostal movement goes forward and you see a intermingling of these two groups. They are Trinitarian Pentecostals and there's one as Pentecostals. In 1914 a group of different groups, because this is very disorganized, okay, you have people all over the place, different assemblies of groups of Pentecostals get together and they come up with something called the General Council of the Assemblies of God. 1916 they decided We need to write some stuff down and get a little bit more structure, right? So they had a meeting, everybody got together, the ladies got together, and they had a vote. What are we gonna do about this teaching of baptizing in the name of Jesus only and the doctrine of the oneness of God? The vote came through and kudos to the assemblies of God. They were voted out. The doctrine of the Trinity is the one that stands. Now, if you were a minister before that, you could no longer preach under the helm of the Assemblies of God if you held to Oneness Doctrine. So, kudos to the Assemblies of God. They stood up for the Doctrine of the Trinity. And the baptismal formula is Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, obviously, those who were Oneness Pentecostals got out of there and they started their own groups, different splinter groups, the largest one, after several mergers happen is the united pentecostal church international. They got 3 million members. So all in all, long story short, there's 25 million oneness pentecostals in the world today, 25 million. Now, how do you recognize them? That's the tricky part. If you go to a oneness pentecostal church or if you go to your garden, variety, Pentecostal, you know, good old-fashioned, Trinitarian Pentecostal, if you go to one of their services, they almost seem similar, right? Especially if you go to more of the smaller churches, and if you like, if you like your services to be a little bit uh, sweaty and action-packed, and you know what I mean, then sometimes they're indistinguishable. So, the problem with this teaching, like I said, is that it's very easily, if you're not paying attention, can be mingled in with Christianity. Let me give you an example. There's a man named Tommy Tenney. He wrote a book called The Gut Chasers. It's a bestseller book. It was Fisher, and you can buy it in any Christian bookstore. You can buy it in Lifeway. You can buy it in any of these bookstores. It's, uh, He also wrote another book, One Night with the King, which was turned into a movie, if you've ever seen that. Well, Tommy Tenney is a oneness Pentecostal minister. He teaches modalism. Uh, Philip, Craig, and Dean. I don't know if you guys know Philip, Craig, and Dean. You can hear hear them in uh, Z88.3, etc. Well, there are three pastors. These are three ministers, and there are three ministers in oneness Pentecostal churches. Now, you wouldn't know that because their stuff can sound the same as what we believe. They tell you about how Jesus is God and all those things. Um, but they're oneness Pentecostal ministers. And also, obviously, the big wami is a man called Thomas Dexter Jakes, a.k.a. T.D. Jakes, who was and still remains a United Pentecostal minister. In fact, T.D. Jakes has been interviewed uh, several times about this issue and he maintains his position of oneness Pentecostalism. Now, what do they teach and how do you identify them? Well, let's start with T.D. Jake's Potter House Church Statement of Faith. This is what it says. The Potterhouse Statement of Faith, which is T.D. Jake's Church, says this. There is one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in three manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not amen. Okay? Now, that sounds sounds great. Right? Pay attention to the word manifestation. Okay? Here's our statement of faith. The Holy Scripture revealed God as creator and sustainer of the universe, existing in three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, with all three persons sharing the exact same divine nature. So our statement of faith says God is one existing in three distinct persons. Their statement of faith says God is one existing in three manifestations. So God can manifest himself as the Son, or as the Father, or as the Holy Spirit. But those three things are not persons that exist equally. There's the heresy. So, they teach there is one God, that's that's great. They emphasize, in fact, they call their teaching oneness. God is one. We only believe in one God. If you go to YouTube and you type in oneness of God, you're going to get hundreds of videos of people saying there's only one God. And they're going to emphasize your verses that talk about, you know, God is one. God alone. There's no other gods before me. All of which we believe. But they... um, Emphasize the fact that God is one, but they will also emphasize the idea of manifestations. That's where you get them. Whenever you see the word manifestation in any statement of faith about the doctrine of God, be weary. That's probably a oneness Pentecostal church. They also call themselves apostolic Christians. The implication is that we are apostolic. We hold to the apostolic faith, the faith of the apostles, whereas Christians do not, right? We have been corrupted by Rome, they'll tell you that. So that's how you identify. So what are their biblical arguments, right? They must have biblical arguments. Like I said, they emphasize the fact that God is one, so they're gonna quote to you all the scriptures and say that God is one, Deuteronomy 6, etc. But they also have certain biblical arguments from the New Testament. And if you can go to John chapter one, verse one, you will see how they deal with some of these verses. I'm not going to get into all the verses. Um, there's not enough time. But in John chapter 1, verse 1, we've been through John 1, 1 a million times before. But when you're dealing with Jesus, you've got to go to John 1, 1. So John chapter 1, verse 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now the arguments that they make is that Jesus is God. Right, The Word was God. Now we know, if you keep on reading John, that it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that the Word is referring to Jesus. So the text says Jesus is God. The Word, Jesus, is God. So they're going to tell you that verse proves that Jesus is God. In other words, that the, the God is Jesus, because they want to tell you that Jesus is Is the only God and he manifests himself differently okay now in other words they'll say that there's only one God in one person that God is and has always been Jesus Now, he took on the role of the Father in creation that he put on flesh and took the role of the Son and now he takes the role of the Holy Spirit but nevertheless Jesus is and has always been the God that we worship now in an interview In 1998, T.D. Jakes said this, this is KKLA 99.5 FM in Los Angeles, he says this, We have one God, this is a quote from T.D. Jakes, We have one God, but He is Father in creation, Son in redemption, and Holy Spirit in regeneration. He's emphasizing the different roles of the one God. Now it is true, John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is God. We believe that. (laughs) We believe that Jesus is God. The problem is with the second statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The difficulty that they have is the the second statement that says that the Word, who is identified as God, was with God. So, the Word, the way that they deal with this, And this is a quote from David Bernard, who is one of their theologians. He said this in a book called The Oneness of God. He says, The Word was not a separate person or a separate God any more than a man's Word is a separate person from Him. Rather, the Word was a thought or a plan in the mind of God. The Logos existed in the mind of God from the beginning of time. When the fullness of time was come, God put put that plan into action. He put flesh on that plan in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is that the word was not a separate person, but the word was simply a thought of God, a plan that he had. So the word, though it is identified as God in the next verse, was not really God in the sense of a separate person, but as it was a thought of God. Here's the problem. Verse 2 kills that idea. Verse 2 says, he was In the beginning with God. He, he, that's the same in the Greek, he was in the beginning with God. It doesn't say it was in the beginning with God. It says he, a person, was with God. And that person is God. So what John 1.1 is telling us is that Jesus, or the Word, is God but that he is not all the God that there is. There's more God other than Jesus. Because the word was with God. It was God, but it was with God. So John 1:1 1, 1 begins with the mystery that Jesus is God, but he was with God. Jesus also, in John chapter 8, verse 17, I've never, I just, I've just seen this verse last night. Jesus, um, I always wonder, why didn't just Jesus come out and say, listen, I'm God, but I'm a separate person from God the Father. <laughs> why don't you just say it like that? It would have been settled. we could going to on with our lives. Well, he did in their context. John chapter 17. I mean, chapter 8, verse 17. I'm going to look it up here because I want to read the whole thing. Um, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. And he says this, Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So Jesus is telling them in the Mosaic law, in the law that God gave to Israel, the civic law of Israel, it was required the testimony of two persons to make a judgment. When somebody is accused, Right? The, the mosaic law was what we call a judicial law. and It's also what we call a negative law. Okay? There's a difference between negative law and positive law. Okay? Positive law does not wait for you to break it. It's trying to catch you before you break it. Okay? That is Roman law or, or pagan law. It's always going to be positive law. It's very executive. It's going to try to get you before you do something. Mosaic law is negative. Say law doesn't bother you. Think of it as Optimus Prime. He's a truck driving down the road, and as long as you don't show up as a Decepticon, he ain't going to do nothing. Once you show up as a Decepticon, he's going to turn into Optimus Prime. He's going to do his thing. That's Jewish law. He's going to wait for you to break the law before he can get you. Okay? You can drive around without a seatbelt all day, but once you crash, now we're going to get you. And if you kill somebody, you get the death penalty, no question asked. In order for that system to work, there's two things that need to happen. Number one, you're assumed innocent until somebody comes and proves that you're guilty. In order to do that, you need two witnesses. You need two persons to be witnesses and give a testimony. Jesus tells them, your law, I love it. he says, in your law, <laughs> even though I gave it to you, but in your law... It is written that you need the testimony of two people, two men. Well, I am one person who gives testimony of myself. The Father gives testimony of me. If God was a one person who changes roles, that would make no sense. Because he would be saying, I am the one who only gives testimony of myself. Though I play different roles. That's not how Jewish uh, law worked. Because in Jewish law, I can say, uh, judge, i give testimony myself as a father. Now as a husband, I also give testimony myself. (laughs) That doesn't work in Jewish law. Okay? You need two people. You need two persons. So Jesus is telling them, I'm a different person from the father even though I'm God so in John chapter 8 it proves that Jesus is God though a separate person from the father now he also draws a distinction between himself and the father in the next verse he says I am he who testified by myself and the father who sent me testifies about me so they were saying to him where is your father Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father you know neither me i'm a this person nor my father we are different persons see the same god but we are different persons so you know me neither me nor my father now that that expression is used all throughout the bible neither me and it's always used to distinguish between two things It's never used to point out the same thing, otherwise that that wouldn't make any sense. So Jesus makes the point that in the New Testament, he is a different person from the Father. Though he does say, me and the Father are one, we are two different persons. Now, here's another occasion in the Bible that throws a little curve at the oneness teaching is Jesus' baptism. In Jesus' baptism, when Jesus was baptized, we're told in the account that the Father speaks from heaven. Okay, so Jesus gets baptized. The Father speaks from heaven. And the Spirit descends as a dove and sits upon Him. Okay, now, all of these is happening in the same time. Okay, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are there, all three of them, at the same time in the same event. Okay, so how do they handle that? Because obviously that doesn't make sense if what they say is true. Well, here's what they say. They'll say that God has the capability of being in different places at the same time. You and I would agree with that. God can be here, He can be in China, He can be wherever, He's omnipresent, He can be anywhere. Okay. Well, if that's the case, they will say He can be at the same place at the same time. First of all, I can do that. (laughs) I'm doing that right now, all right? So why, they will say, why would God, first of all, they'll say, so God could, could have been there in his three different forms at the same time, all right? He's God. He can do that. The question is, why would he do that? Okay, why would God decide, I'm just going to show up in my three different roles that I play at the same time to make you all think that I'm a trinity, But I'm not really a Trinity, but I'm just gonna do this. It doesn't make any sense. The point of the verse or or the account of the baptism of Jesus is that God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That is one person speaking about another person. This is my beloved Son. So, the voice from heaven is pointing to Israel, this is the son that I said I was going to give you. See, remember I told you I was going to give you a son? This is him, and I am well pleased. So, it makes their, their, their explanations that they have for the account of Jesus' baptism make absolutely no sense. In fact, it makes God deceiving, because God is just deceiving people, making you think that he's three when he's not, he's just one. So, more verses, 1 John chapter 1 says this, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So there's distinguishing, distinguishing between two persons. Our fellowship, our Christian fellowship, is with one another and with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, a separate person from the Father. Second John chapter 1 says this grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. So he's making the point. He says, will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, who by the way is the Son of the Father. In case you didn't know, Father, Son, and He is the Son of the Father. Okay. So In John 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Greek term is hen esmen, and it's expressing a unity of essence. When when Jesus says in John chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one. He's not saying, I and the Father are this one person. What he's saying is, I and the Father is one. The Greek term there means that we are one of the same thing. Not necessarily that we're the same person. See, I can say, me and my wife are Puerto Rican. So we have, we're the same thing, but we're not the same person. So even when Jesus speaks of oneness with the Father, he's speaking of oneness with the Father as an essence. They're the one of the same thing, but they're not the one or the same person. So that brings us to the only verse in the Bible their biggest stronghold that they use to defend the doctrine, that's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is the only verse in the Bible where Jesus is referred to as Father. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, you know this verse. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is their bread and butter. This is where they live. Okay, They will point out to you that the Bible is teaching here that Jesus, obviously the son that was given to us is Jesus, he is Eternal Father. So the name of God is Jesus, and Eternal Father is the role that he plays in the Old Testament and in creation, okay? So, like I said, this is the only verse in the Bible, the only verse in the Bible that calls Jesus Father, okay? Everywhere else in the Bible, Jesus is called the Son, all throughout the New Testament, the Son of God. Jesus called himself the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son. He's never called Father, nor does the Bible ever say that Jesus is the Father. But in this verse, Jesus is called the Eternal Father. So how do, we, how do we deal with this? Okay. First of all, we don't put away the rest of the Bible. Okay. We don't throw away the rest of the Bible and leave this verse sitting by itself. Okay. You take the whole Bible in. The whole Bible plainly teaches that Jesus is the Son and He's never called or referred to as the Father. Okay. So we also need to understand something that is called progressive revelation. Okay, we know that the revelation that God gave to man in the Bible came in a progress. Moses didn't get everything, okay? He got some things, and then as the Bible moves on, we begin to see more revelations of God. For example, the doctrine of justification by faith was hinted at in the Old Testament, but it was not really truly fully explained and expounded until you get to Paul. So, without the writings of Paul, we probably would not see. That's, what, that's why the, the Jews couldn't see so many things, is because they, they, that's all they had. Okay. So the Bible progressively reveals uh, things to us, and the doctrine of the Trinity is hinted at. In the Old Testament, Genesis 1-1, let us make man in our own image, etc. But we don't get the full revelation until we get to the New Testament. So obviously, Isaiah is not giving us a theological discourse in the doctrine of God. Okay? He is simply uh, writing down or giving us a prophecy about a Messiah and a king who is to come. So we have to understand that. So... Keeping that in mind, there's going to be two ways that Christians interpret this passage. Okay? Now, number one is the word father could mean author or founder. In in fact, there have been several translations like the Darby translations, the Young Literal Translation, that translate this verse as the father of eternity. Rather than Eternal Father, the Father of Eternity. It could be translated like that in the Hebrew. Okay, It's not translated in the King James like that in other English Bibles after that. But it could be translated like that in the Hebrew. It could be translated the Father of Eternity. Meaning that Jesus is the Father and the Author of Eternity or Eternal Life. Which is taught all over the New Testament. That he's the one who brought us eternal life. So it could be translated, wonderful counselor, father of eternity, prince of peace. It could be translated like that, and you wouldn't be doing any violence to the original text. The, the way the translations work, things sometimes can go either way, because it's just very old. This Hebrew is very old Hebrew, so decisions have to be made. So a good Bible will give you that, and the footnotes. It could also be translated this way. So, the other explanation that we have is that Jesus, as the Messiah and as King, is a father to his people, or acts as a father towards his people. Now, all throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus is called the author of our faith. He's also called our, I think he's champion, I believe Hebrews called him. So, in the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the one who gathers those in, protect us, keeps us, and that can be seen, remember this is messianic prophecy, as the son who is wonderful, who is counselor, who is prince of peace, is also a father to those who follow him. Because he's a king, and he's going to lead his people. It could also be seen that way. That is more; it's less explicit, but it could be seen that way given the teaching of the New Testament. Or it could be translated Father of Eternity. Okay, Either of those two ways this verse can handle. But remember, we don't take this verse alone. We have to put this in the context of the rest of the Bible. The mistake that they make is that they grab onto the word Father and the word Son and mingle them together into one person, which is contrary to whatever you know, everything else the Bible teaches. Now, the whole New Testament maintains a distinction between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is called the Son all throughout the New Testament. He's never called Father. So, why does this matter? What's the big deal, right? I mean, this is just a very detailed little thing, right? It's just a change of a word, manifestation, persons. Well, it matters, obviously, because we want to have a proper view of God and be able to discern false teaching, okay? We need to be able to discern false teaching. This is very tricky. This is a very tricky because you can go to a church. You've perhaps been to a church. you perhaps grew up in a church that taught this, and you probably never knew about it because you never heard it. And you, probably, you can read through a statement of faith, Like the one in the potter's house and go right through it and keep on going and you wouldn't know any different. Well, it matters because there are certain, number one, this is a heretical view of God. This throws you off the Christian faith. Number one. Number two, it affects the gospel. It's very important. It affects the gospel. How does it do that? If you go to Hebrews 9, in the book of Hebrews... This is very important for you to understand. This is an essential of the Christian faith. Chapter 9, verse 24. The Bible teaches a doctrine called intercession. Okay? The doctrine is simply this. that Christ, after He died, was buried and resurrected. He became a propitiation for our sins. He ascended into the right hand of the Father, where he is advocating for his people here's what it says verse 24 for christ did not enter a holy place with hands a mere copy of the true one but unto heaven itself now to appear in the presence of god for us so jesus christ entered into heaven itself where He appears in the presence of God. Now, this would make no sense unless Christ is a separate person from the Father, because then what this would be saying is that God entered heaven itself to present Himself in front of Himself for us. makes no sense. So Jesus Christ, a separate person who is God, entered into heaven itself where he stands in the, presence, in the presence of the Father in our behalf. Now in 1 John is going to explain this a little bit in more detail. Very simply, 1 John chapter 2 says this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is the purpose of my letter. Okay? That you may not sin. John was a Wesleyan. You may not sin. But then... If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the ministry of Jesus Christ today is to advocate for those who believe in Him with the Father when they sin. If this ministry is done away with, and it is, because this can only work with a Trinitarian God, then you have no salvation. You're thrown off. You're you're worse off than you were in the Old Testament. You have nobody serving as an advocate with the Father in your behalf. But we have, in fact, the word, the word, my Bible says, the word here can also be translated as intercessor. He's interceding in your behalf in the presence of the Father. That is his intercessory work that he is doing today. So when a Christian is struggling in his sanctification process with sin and falls into sins, those who are in Christ have an advocate with the Father who is interceding in their behalf. And John goes on to say that he himself is not only our intercessor, but he himself is The propitiation, he is the substitute for our sins, not only ours, but only the elect. Is that what it says? No, the whole world. So, he is a substitute, that's that's right, you, you know. He is the propitiate, he's not only our intercessor, he's propitiation for our sins, not only ours, but the whole world. The whole world, their sins have been, have been propitiated. But those who are in Christ also have Christ himself as an intercessor. So if anyone sins, I write, I write this. Listen, I write this so you don't sin. That's the point of this letter. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Don't be distressed if you fail and fall, you have an advocate with the Father interceding in your behalf. This advocate has to be God, but cannot be the Father. It has to be a different person. So that doctrine is done away with in oneness Pentecostalism. You can't have that. And if you can't have that, you're thrown off of salvation. And that is the truth. So the reason why this is important for us as a church and as Christians is because this is not only an essential view of God, but it's also essential for us to have a Trinitarian view to properly understand the gospel. Now, I know, you and I both know, that uh, probably most evangelical people that go to church probably don't know what I just told you. We know that. And there can be people who go to Oneness Pentecostal churches who out of ignorance may be saved. So, I, if you have relatives or people that you know that may attend these churches, I'm not saying you don't have to pass a, a quiz <laughs> on the proper understanding of the Trinity to go to heaven, okay? That's not what you have to do. In fact, even the greatest theologian doesn't have a proper understanding completely of the Trinity today. But, A denial of this teaching of the Trinity, a purposely, I I am sure that T.D. Jakes knows what the Trinity is. I'm sure he knows what the doctrine teaches. An open denial of that doctrine does throw you off the Christian faith. Whether you like it or not, if you're openly denying, if you know what this is, but you say, no, I'm going to go with this, you're thrown off of the Christian faith. That doesn't mean that there may be people who ignorantly may not know, whatever, that could be saved. We know that. But an open denial of this teaching ruins, it throws out the sense of the whole New Testament. The whole New Testament makes no sense if you don't hold to a Trinitarian view of God. So, for us as a church to properly understand not only God himself, but the gospel that saves us, it is important that we hold to a Trinitarian view god because that's what makes it possible now next sermon i'm gonna get into the doctrine of the holy spirit and the holy spirit who is a person i will show you 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 can see from the scriptures how him being the third person of we okay we number them because we're humans okay the third person of the trinity okay um you can see how him as a person is the one who brings you salvation before you even saved. He's the one who convicts you of sin. He's the one who gives you a gift of faith. He's the one who does all this work, pre-salvation, during salvation and his work of sanctification in our lives, and his work of giving the church gifts for, for the church to. the reason why we can work as a church is because of He, the Holy Spirit, is in our midst equipping us and so forth. So you can see the entire Trinitarian God at work in the salvation of His people, their sanctification, and the church. None of that would work in any other way but holding to the view of God that the Bible teaches. So, again, how do you identify these people? Word manifestation. Keep that in mind. You read something like manifestations or modes or roles. They don't use that a lot. They use manifestation okay you're probably dealing with a oneness pentecostal church or a oneness church if you see the word apostolic they throw that that's what they call themselves apostolic so apostolic church or all you nine times out of ten you're dealing with some sort of oneness teaching in those type of churches now i also want to emphasize the oneness pentecostals are not the same as your regular pentecostals okay um, they have different teachings. They believe that speaking in tongues is evidence of salvation. That is not what Pentecostals teach. The mainstream, mainline Pentecostal t- teaching is that the speaking in tongues is a s- evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not salvation. Okay, so this, they got different doctrines from the Pentecostals. Now, whether or not you believe in speaking in tongues, that's a separate issue but they have different teachings. And I believe the reason why these have these weird teachings is because they have an improper understanding of God. It leads you to all these other things. They're very legalistic. They have to be. They don't have an intercessor (laughs) advocating for them. So you have to be very legalistic. A lot of them are, not all of them. A lot of them are very legalistic and so forth. So as a church, proper understanding of God, proper doctrine of God, is where everything stems from, okay? So, next time I will be getting into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully, I will eventually land this plane and we'll move on to the doctrine of man, okay? So, we'll be here for another year and a half. So, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word, Lord. We thank You for Your teaching. We thank You for Your doctrine, Lord. We thank You for Jesus Christ, who is Your Son, Lord, and our intercessor, Lord, and Advocate, in our behalf, Lord. We thank you for your glorious gospel, Lord. We thank you for your glorious salvation, Lord. And we thank you for what you've revealed to us, Lord, as a church, and we pray that we may be able to continue to understand your word uh, properly, Lord, and that the Holy Spirit, Lord, may guide us and help us understand the glorious truths that are found in your word,
1: Lord. We
0: thank you in Jesus' name,
1: amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you'd like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTWchurch. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTWchurch. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.